This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. I'm Arthur Snell. Welcome to Doomsday Watch. So in 2007, in May, the government decided to move a Soviet military statue from the Tallinn city centre to a military cemetery. And overnight, riots broke out. That's Karolina Inga, an Estonian high schooler at the time. Later, she would lead the cybersecurity department of her country's foreign affairs ministry. But what started happening the next day is that from somewhere abroad, and at the time we, we didn't know from where, many services in Estonia started facing DDoS attacks. Estonia is a country smaller than Wales, known for its charming capital city and popularity with stag parties, but it is also known for something else. As a former Soviet territory that regained its independence in 1991, it has a complex relationship with Russia. And in 2007, it was the target of the world's first major coordinated cyber attack. Mikko Hutpinen was a young cybersecurity expert based 50 miles away in the Finnish capital, Helsinki. This was the bronze soldier attack, a real-world crisis, which then escalated and moved from the real world into the online world. We here were watching very carefully and trying to provide as much help as we could by monitoring the attacks and trying to like, isolate the IP ranges where they were coming from. Which, you know, as a side note, it was very interesting that the attacks were timed exactly to Moscow's business hours. And at the time, the most crucial ones that affected the most lives were those of banks. And those services became unavailable to citizens. That time in internet history showed us how quickly we had moved our services online without realizing that if they suddenly don't work anymore because they are online, that translates into very real-world problems. When we are talking to our governments, when we are go shopping, when we just try to take our kids to school, digital technologies are part of all of those journeys. And sort of the potential for disruption and the potential for destruction even of, of sort of the way we live now is humongous. We had these massively large attacks, most of which were coming from Russia, hitting Estonian businesses and banks and Estonian public sector. And that really opened eyes, obviously, in Estonia, but across the rest of the world. The, the more we rely on technology, the more vulnerable we are. These vulnerabilities lead to real harms. Privacy is dying. We can be tracked and monitored better than ever before. Who might be after you? Why and how? We all keep tracking devices in our pockets. There are countries out there only very thinly veiling their ambitions to just disrupt our life. Cyber weapons. Nobody sees them. Nobody knows them. They are kept as great secrets. If there's a threat online, we miss our current way of life gets destroyed. So my name is Mikko Hyppönen. I've lived in Finland all my life, and all my life I've spent with technology, trying to figure out where the attacks that we see on, on the internet, where are they coming from? Who are, who are the people behind them? In a world where everything is connected, and increasingly everything is connected to the internet, Cybersecurity has gone from being an obscure technology issue to something that affects all of us all the time. Yeah. When you think about it a little bit deeper, it's, it's, it's always been true. Um, when we invent technology which changes our, our world enough, which is good enough, which we, which we want to use in our daily lives, we fairly quickly become dependent on it. And, and I mean really dependent, meaning to the level that our, our societies won't be able to function without that technology. And if you look at what it will look like, well, all you have to do is look at look at electricity. But today we are completely dependent on electricity. And if there's a blackout, nothing works. And if you imagine an extended blackout, like months or years, well, we wouldn't be able 
to feed our people. Our factories wouldn't run. We wouldn't be able to move around or communicate. And exactly the same thing is happening right now with connectivity. We will be exactly as reliant on connectivity as we are today reliant on electricity. At Finite Solutions Smart Home in Leeds, visitors are invited to get a feel of where our houses are heading. From automated blinds to hidden cinemas, machine that can speak to machine. How much data we use has rocketed as a result of smartphones and tablets. But with connectivity in the home set to become an integral part of how we live, our digital needs are likely to explode. That's really only the beginning, since we are turning everything into a computer. And I'm not only speaking about smart devices like smart TVs or smart watches. Eventually, this is going to affect anything. I mean, any device which runs on electricity will be online eventually. So for years and years, we've been tracking network traffic to figure out what kind of attacks are going on and where they're coming from and what kind of devices are doing these attacks. And as you might expect, most of the attacks and most of the malicious traffic we've seen on the internet has been coming from Windows computers. Because we all know that Windows is, that's where all the viruses and malware, that's where they are. Well, Three years ago, that changed. Today, most of the attack traffic we see on the internet is coming from Linux devices. And that's not Linux computers. That's smart doorbells and security cameras and and things like that. And the typical way attackers gain access to these smart security cameras or smart doorbells is that they haven't been patched, they haven't been updated at all, which means they're running age-old, like 10-year-old Linux distribution, which has security vulnerabilities, or that they still have the built-in password. In worst cases, the user can't even change the password, yet these things are online and can be accessed remotely. And the typical thing the attackers use these for is that they build massively large denial-of-service networks out of them. These are the kind of networks which you can use to launch attacks which will take down websites or email servers. And they, they can then use these for taking down people they don't like or websites they don't like or blackmail website operators to pay them money to stop these attacks. Um, and there's nothing we can do to prevent this. This is already well well underway. And I am the father of the Hyponen law, which says that if it's smart, it's also vulnerable which is a very pessimistic law, but it's also very true. None of this has never been done before. We are the first generations in mankind's history who are living in two places at the same time. Um, Mankind has walked the planet for 100,000 years, living only in the real world. And we, we are now living more and more of our lives in the online world. Technology is bringing great benefits to us. We want to embrace them, but it's a trade-off where we also face completely new kinds of risks. If it's smart, it's also vulnerable. But seriously, internet-connected fridges, how bad can they be? Does it matter if someone finds out how much milk I have? I asked Carolina if the threat surface Mikko described is as fragile a place as it sounds. I believe it is. You know, we, we all have a sense of what a conventional war could mean how how horrible it would be and how the world we have at the moment would be destroyed but i think when it comes to the digital space we perhaps don't even understand how close we are to losing our way of life there how how easy it would be it doesn't have to happen across society it can even happen to us as individuals that if if there's a threat online that we 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 miss or we we don't respond to adequately, then our current way of life gets destroyed, and 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 it's it's certainly the case that um, those threats are different, but the impact can be just as destructive um, in both the conventional and the digital space. Maybe it's me being Estonian. We are accustomed to someone constantly testing us that we know how precious freedom is and we we know how precious peace is. There are three different things going on in cyberspace which have their equivalent in the physical world. There's cyber warfare, cyber espionage and cyber crime. Here's Mikko to help us understand the difference. I remember very well in 2007, when the infamous denial-of-service attacks against infrastructure in Estonia started, 
And I think we're still fighting over the actual meaning of that attack. And when we use terms like cyber weapon or cyber war, we, we have to be really clear that we really mean what we say. So we quite often see, um, for example, uh, intelligence agencies using uh, online attacks to steal information. We see that characterized as cyber war. And that's clearly not war. That's, that's spying. And interestingly enough, I think the biggest risk for internet in the future really is organized crime gangs. But actually, we have already seen examples of real cyber war. I mean, that is a problem. We, we really have to keep the, a close eye on that. Um, and of course, conflicts and wars have always expanded to new domains thanks to technology. Early on, we only fought wars with the bow and arrow and swords until we got good enough technology for warships and warplanes and satellites and now cyberspace. There clearly is a new arms race underway right now. It begins with a simple USB key, then with surgical precision, penetrates some of the world's most advanced computer security. The first cyber weapons, say experts, to threaten to damage targets in the real world. Cyber strategists say the Stuxnet worm is so formidable it almost certainly has to have state backing. Some acts of cyber war can have a physical impact, just like you would expect from an airstrike. Stuxnet, a so-called cyber worm targeting the Iranian nuclear program, is believed to have damaged around a thousand centrifuges, which are crucial for the enrichment of weapons-grade nuclear fuel. And then you might have heard of NotPetya, a Russian cyber attack used against Ukraine. Yeah, well, this is definitely happening. Uh, when we look at known cases of offensive attacks online, which we trace back to governments, we have highly confident proofs of involvement of at least 20 different governments, including the British government. But I say that it's, we're highly confident it's them. This is one of the issues. It's very hard to prove who actually was behind a particular attack, which is different from any other weapons. If, if you used Real-world weapons, everybody knows who it was. If you see a bomber flying above you, you, you can just see which flag is on it. But when you use cyber attacks, it's, it's easy to deny and it's hard to prove who did it. Then I think Stuxnet from 11 years ago is a great example of this. One of the most famous incidents in history where we all know who did it. It's the United States and Israel targeting the nuclear enrichment systems of Iran. Although, once again, we can't actually prove that, but you know, you just have to take my word on it that that's, that's, that's the way it was. And this is why I'm labeling the NotPetya incident of Russia attacking Ukraine. That's cyber war, because there was a war. Petya was a ransomware gang operating from Moscow, doing their attacks for money. And then in the middle of the Russia-Ukraine conflict, we see a slightly modified version of Petya, which we are nowadays calling NotPetya, targeting targets only inside Ukraine. And when we analyze this further, not just us here, but researchers around the world, um, we came to the conclusion that it's actually a copycat. And it's most likely done by the Russian government, which tries to make it look like a ransomware. But it actually is not ransomware. It actually is a cyber weapon. People are calling this the grey zone. It has elements of conflict, but it doesn't have any of the clarity of traditional warfare. Are cyber criminal gangs working on behalf of governments? Are governments pretending to be criminal gangs? Nobody can prove anything and on it goes. And just as in a traditional arms race, opponents copy each other's technology. In 2017, a major ransomware attack called WannaCry hit computers all over the world, including thousands of machines belonging to the UK National Health Service. This attack was eventually attributed to North Korea, with a number of countries alleging that Kim Jong-un himself had given the green light, supposedly as a means of generating money for the country. But the underlying technology being used in the attack came from the US government, a cyber attack exploit known as Eternal Blue, which had been developed by the US National Security Agency and later leaked. When you think about what should an intelligence agency do when they discover a, an unknown security vulnerability in software that their own people are extensively using, like, for example, the, the NSA in USA finding a vulnerability from Windows, which is being used by 200 million Americans, should they call Microsoft and report it so it would be fixed? Or should they try to keep it a secret and use that to target enemies of the United States, which would also be beneficial? 
one thing which complicates this is that cyber weapons have a limited shelf life. Eventually, the bug will be found and fixed. Or if it's not found, then the system simply changes. There's a new version of operating system or whatever. And this means that the militaries and the intelligence agencies, which are putting millions into development of these weapons, they they want to use them before they rot away. This is very much linked to deterrence, to how weapons work, really. Basically, the idea of, of military parades. Why would you have military parades showing all your fighter jets and tanks and intercontinental missiles for any other purpose except showing them to your enemies that, hey, we have all this thing, don't come to us because we can throw them at you. Uh, the prime example of deterrence is, is nuclear weapons. There's 11 countries on the planet which have nuclear weapons, and we know e- each one of them very well. So you don't need to use weapons like these. And, and cyber weapons are the exact opposite. Nobody sees them, nobody knows them. They are kept as great secrets. Um, the end result is that countries around the world are putting millions and millions into developing cyber weapons, and nobody knows about them, and they have no deterrence power whatsoever. And this is what, what worries me about, especially like militaries. And these things seem really hard. We have really tough issues. Privacy is dying. We can be tracked and monitored better than ever before. The risks we we face as societies have completely changed and it seems really hard, but it's no wonder because this is all very, very new. So no surprise, we have no easy solutions on how to do this right. So these weapons are hidden and we don't know their power. Could this escalate out of control? When does the grey zone become a real war? If you're as old as me, you might remember the 1983 movie War Games playing on the nuclear fears at the tail end of the Cold War. In the film, a teenage Matthew Broderick starts a nuclear war after hacking into the Pentagon's network to impress a girl. Now, this may be a podcast, but it isn't a work of fiction. And some people think this is going too far. We did ourselves a disservice accidentally in the last 30, 40 years by glamorising and catastrophizing cybersecurity. Kieran Martin was a British government security official and the first CEO of the UK National Cyber Security Centre. He thinks we all need to calm down a little. It all goes back to, for example, war games, and that's the way we were trained to think about cyber threats. Um, now, clearly that didn't happen, but we wasted a lot of time and effort focusing on that particular part of the problem. What actually has happened is that cyber has become a sort of chronic rather than catastrophic threat, and that's true due to the structural insecurity of the way we built systems in the 90s in particular. Nobody's fault, it just happened that way. The California internet revolution emphasized connectivity over security. The whole thing was full of holes, and those holes were exploited, but often relatively silently. You know, the US complaining about Russian espionage uh, attacks, which sort of most people would regard as fair game, because everybody spies. But, you know, what isn't regarded as fair game is things like, um, say, hacking a presidential candidate's email server and then leaking them all to disrupt uh, that um, election. So nation states exploited those weaknesses, but so too uh, increasingly did criminals. But again, the criminal harm was often fairly silent and visible and tangible. So you'd hear all these gargantuan data thefts. But you would struggle to understand, well, you know, if I'm on, say, and this is a real example for me personally, if I'm on the Ticketmaster database that was stolen by some criminal, what harm does that cause me? And it's quite hard to tell. So it's sort of silent and visible harm. Then ransomware comes along and it's been around for a while, but in 2021, it changed a bit. So ransomware, um, again, exploited those basic insecurities. The ransomware hackers cripple systems by encrypting them involuntarily and then ask you or demand that you pay money to get them back um, up and running. And for years, again, that was a largely silent um, threat. You know, you could pay quietly and nobody would really notice And often. In 2021, what's happened is the ransomware hackers who are mostly based in Russia have started operating with impunity and attacking targets where there's real social disruption. Two examples, one is um, a pipeline in the US owned by a company called Colonial and there are fuel shortages in 
queues for petrol on the east coast of the US and the Biden administration has to suspend safety regulations about the transportation of oil over land. The even worse case which brings it home is what happened to Ireland in May where a similar group of Russian hackers hacked the commissioning body for Irish healthcare and therefore operations were cancelled. It was the first targeted attack that I know of on a national, an entire national healthcare system. And you can see what the real world outcomes there. You know, um, maternity services were greatly reduced, cancer operations were postponed or cancelled, and so on and so on. So what we've seen with ransomware is on the attacker side, just the sheer recklessness of it. But I think on the defensive side, what it shows up is actually the vulnerability and dependency on these um, systems. The pipeline's a really good example because in cybersecurity, it's a sort of doctrine that if you have what they call operational technology, something like a pipeline, uh, a sort of hardware system, then it should its controls should not depend on you know a software system like the emails and so on, the enterprise technology used by the company. And clearly, in that case, that didn't hold. So that was a very, very concerning illustration of our social vulnerability to actually what was technically not a terribly sophisticated attack. So that's why this sort of structural chronic insecurity that's been harming us in invisible uh, ways for you know a couple of decades now is really coming out more into the open because of the ransomware uptick in 2021. Kieran is probably right that hackers aren't about to start a nuclear war for the moment. But he's also right about the fact that the internet is not built for security. And that fact is colliding with something else, that we're living in an age of disorder. The global rules are breaking down. Russian assassins use chemical weapons in Salisbury. The US carries out drone attacks that kill civilians. China kidnaps dissidents. And into enduring disorder come increasingly ruthless cyber criminals, many of whom are affiliated with authoritarian states. In this hyperconnected digital world, could ransomware gangs loosely affiliated with state agencies actually take lives with a line of code? This scenario is completely plausible. And and Estonia was lucky, you know, we, we had workflows disrupted for a week, but but essentially that was it. There were there were no human casualties. We we restored the systems and, and continued with our lives after the cyber attack. Um, but we actually saw something quite similar some months ago in Germany, where, where exactly a hospital was hit by ransomware. The hospital couldn't admit any more patients. So some a person who was having a heart attack at the time was in a ambulance and got diverted to a different hospital 30 minutes away. And the person ended up losing their life. You know, in Estonia, we, we talk a lot about the, the critical infrastructure that um, we can imagine the havoc if a hack were to turn all the traffic lights to red, the entire city would grind to a halt. But what would happen if they turned all the lights to green? That would be a lot worse. So so these sort of scenarios of, of, a, of a loss of life happening as a result of um, ransomware or a virus just that breaks loose, essentially, and, and, and targets systems that weren't even um, part of the original plan for hackers who may have been just out for financial gain or, or these great power rivalries. And it's part of life at the moment that there are countries out there who who are only very thinly veiling their ambitions to just disrupt our life and, and, and cause trouble. So I, I think there is a lot of um, thinking that needs to be done on, on how to make sure that sort of the, the internet and the, the digital services we use in 10 years are ones that we are comfortable with. If a sophisticated state-sponsored attack were to hit a Western democracy, the repercussions would be a lot worse than disrupted workflows. We've talked a lot about cyber attacks on institutions, hospitals, businesses, governments. But what about individuals? I want to go back to somebody called Ghanim. We spoke to him in an earlier episode about Saudi Arabia. He had been physically targeted in London. Now, a leading Saudi dissident has been granted permission by the High Court in London to sue the Saudi government for allegedly hacking his mobile phone. What do you believe happened and what's your evidence? Well, uh, we believe uh, they have hacked uh, my phone. In that episode, we talked about how Mohammed bin Salman, 
MBS, Saudi Arabia's ruthless crown prince, has been targeting dissidents abroad. But there's something else. He's been using a spyware program called Pegasus, which is developed by an Israeli company called NSO and sold to authoritarian governments all over the world to crack open people's smartphones. The power of NSO's software is terrifying. The apps on your phone, including the ones you've been told are secure, can be hacked if your phone is infected. And it's almost impossible to detect. This product and ones like it have been used to target and track dissidents. The NSO group, uh, the former hacking team and Finn Fisher, provide essentially a turnkey solution uh, to, to governments. Because of that, a number of sort of smaller authoritarian uh, regimes have essentially purchased turnkey spying, granting them very sophisticated abilities for not a lot of money. And they have, of course, immediately abused them. My name is Eva Galperin. I am the Director of Cybersecurity at the Electronic Frontier Foundation. I work at EFF's Threat Lab, where I work on the protection of uh, especially vulnerable populations, like journalists, activists, and uh, victims of domestic violence. Eva has worked at EFF, a US nonprofit dedicated to protecting online rights for the past 15 years, and has tracked an increasing sophistication in how the digital space has been exploited by oppressors to target vulnerable individuals. Around 2011, I was working with activists in Vietnam and in Syria who were seeing emails with strange attachments. And that sort of spiraled out into reports on you know, threat actors in Kazakhstan and in Lebanon. Uh, the Vietnamese government actually sent me malware, which I appreciated. It saved me a lot of trouble. Uh, and it really just kind of spiraled out uh, from there. One of the big issues here is the global reach of these tools. Once upon a time, a dissident might take refuge in a foreign country and be largely beyond the reach of the security goons from their country of origin. Now. Via your smartphone, you can be targeted by anyone, wherever you are on planet Earth. I think that most people don't understand quite how much data their uh, their smartphones or their social media accounts leak about themselves. Uh, spying on people's phones is incredibly powerful because, as you pointed out, we all keep tracking devices in our pockets. And it turns out that uh, there are plenty of governments that use these extremely powerful tools uh, in order to spy on their uh, on their political enemies. And that is uh, essentially their way of keeping and cementing their power. Uh, there is a whole spectrum of oppression and there is a whole spectrum of threat. For example, we have seen Pegasus uh, abused in Mexico where it was used by government officials to spy on their political rivals. Uh, including a group of scientists contributing to a campaign to ban certain kinds of, uh, of sugar products. So really the, the reasons for this kind of spying can get uh, quite petty. Uh, in the UAE, there was a prince who used Pegasus in order to spy on his uh, on his wife and well soon on his ex-wife and uh, lawyers during divorce proceedings. And these vulnerabilities lead to real harms and leaving people who do not expect to have angered an authoritarian regime that has purchased Pegasus and is likely to tar- target them with it, uh, to, to sit there paranoid that the extremely sophisticated, undetectable software that they cannot even stop from being installed on their phones may be present and giving away their movements is uh, not a good use of anybody's time. decide the way it should and revoke NSO's security license or make sure that there is proper oversight on NSO's work and in generally 
on all Israeli security and arms trade. So, in this era of globalization, but also of increasing global disorder, the vulnerabilities go from governments all the way down to individuals. We must be at a point where the Wild West of the cyber world needs some regulating. But how do we do that? To introduce rules to a space that is traditionally completely averse to such things. Are there legal or regulatory remedies available? Can you just ban this stuff? Well, one of the problems with a sort of legislative approach is that simply outlawing companies or this software is unlikely to be effective. People who are involved in this uh, in this process uh, clearly are are not very concerned about the rule of law. Uh, a couple of approaches that EFF thinks are worthwhile include pushing governments where these companies are located to uh, use their export control re- regulations to deny them. And uh, while this sounds good on paper, uh, you have to keep in mind that a lot of these companies are located in Israel. And uh, Israel is ostensibly part of the agreement among countries to not engage in this kind of behavior, and they sanction it anyway, essentially because uh, countries like Saudi Arabia are considered to be allies in the region. So uh, in that sense, we don't really have a lot of, uh, of leverage with which to stop them. Um, but uh, the, the other thing that EFF would really like to see is uh, private rights of action. We think that that can really do a lot in order to increase both the cost and the consequences. Uh, there are a number of lawsuits underway in Israeli court, uh, which I am following closely, mostly brought by activists and journalists who have found this spyware on their, uh, on their devices uh, well outside of Israel. But there's a much bigger challenge than just limiting the spread of spyware, even though that's very important. We need to manage the entire technological revolution, the Internet of Things, or IoT, that will see every plugged-in device connecting to the Internet. Kieran Martin. The main thing, to go right back to the start about, you know, the explosion of risk and the alleged law that with increasing connectivity comes increased risk. So if you take something like Internet of Things security, there's some really interesting work going on. And the UK was in the lead in some of it. Singapore has probably taken the lead, where essentially you're not allowed to sell defective kit into the Singaporean market anymore. Um, So IoT is changing. Um, IoT is an example of the way technology is changing. We're moving from um, the sort of 90s model of give away personal data in exchange for free access to web-based services, which is a pretty difficult model for security. In um, in IoT, the T you know stands for things. It's an object you can hold it. You can make security. You can specify security requirements. And just like you can't sell defective cars, you can't sell defective IoT. And you know the more governments move in that direction, the better. But I mean, for better or worse, um, the European Union, which has very little serious capability of its own in terms of tech companies knows how to use the regulatory power that comes with having nearly half a billion wealthy internet users. And, you know, whether or not you like it or not, it sets very onerous standards for data protection. We also have to think about how to make security pay. I mean, a good example of this is at the moment, the British Parliament is um, considering the telecom security bill. It's absolutely critical that that passes, in my view. Now, nobody remembers the telecom security bill anymore because it it got bogged down in the row over Huawei and 5G. That actually... um, important though it was that was that was actually a secondary issue the big problem that bill seeks to fix is the fact that security doesn't pay in telecoms the way the market's regulated is about lowest possible consumer prices um security and we used to have to go around when i was in government we used to have to go around the telecoms companies basically saying asking them nicely their phrase asking them nicely to improve their security and if one of them did it they would be at a competitive disadvantage to others and that's not the case in banking where for 10 years the bank of england have had a really good system where you know meeting cyber resilience is part of the regulatory requirements everybody has to do it so nobody's at a disadvantage if you do it that's what we're putting in that's what the government 
government's putting in in telecoms. So you've got to get that framework right. And then lots of things like the information flows, the sharing of best practice, they flow from that, not the other way around. But are governments too late? Just at the moment that they try to bring in structural regulations that force the right level of security compliance, we're in an increasingly fractured world. And the biggest tech companies probably have more power than most governments. They can decide if they want to ignore the regulations. But for Kieran, a ransomware attack on an Irish hospital further enforces the need to examine the premises of our increasing digital dependency. The ransomware consequences of 2021 remind us that we have vulnerabilities in our systems, which you know any competent nation-state actor could exploit. You know, we do need a national security effort to look after the highest end of the threat. But it's back to that point, and again, it's potentially only a matter of time before criminal activity causes a sort of loss of life. Um, we need to think very, very hard about making the systems more resilient against that sort of outcome. Um, let me give you an example. It appears that the government of Argentina, which has created a national registry of persons with all sorts of personal data on it, that that database has been subverted by some criminal who's published the details of the president and Lionel Messi and Sergio Aguero and so on online. Now, the lesson there is not just about how to secure and share information. The lesson there is about the design of the thing in the first place. Is it really wise in this day and age to establish something called a national registry of persons that puts most of your personal data into one place at population, at national population level? I can see why people built it, because it would improve the delivery of public services if it's done well, but it creates a single source of vulnerability. So let's take a hospital. You know, is there a single off switch um, in a hospital or a health care system that would cause catastrophic failure and the answer in the cyber age is there really shouldn't be pipelines are a really good example because in cybersecurity, it's a sort of doctrine that if you have what they call operational technology something like a pipeline its controls should not depend on you know a software system like the emails and so on the enterprise technology used by the company and clearly in that case that didn't hold so that was a very very concerning illustration of our social vulnerability to actually what was technically not a terribly sophisticated attack. I think what's really interesting though about it, and this is a real challenge for open Western societies, in Britain and Ireland, that is seen basically as a national security uh, issue. In the United States, in both the pipeline case and when hospitals are ransomware, the decision is entirely in private sector hands. So if you ever, you know, if an American hospital gets um, hit by a ransomware attack, um, if you think back to the uh, to the noughties drama House, the key decisions on responding to that attack don't fall to the President of the United States or the Health and Human Services Secretary or the Governor of the state, they fall to Dr. Cuddy. And so in a sense, what we've got in the US and sometimes in the UK and Ireland and EU states and so forth is the privatization of national security risk. So I think governments have to get cleverer. But what I'm not saying nationalize US healthcare. You know, I know enough about American politics. No, that's not on the agenda. What I am saying is that governments need to think a bit more about given the critical dependence on private companies for public services and you know, key public utilities and given their vulnerability to disruption via cyber. How does the government deal with hacks on private entities that endanger the public safety when they are basically national security issues? We've kind of been tiptoeing around something, so we should probably spell it out. When it comes to state threats, one country has been ahead of the curve for a number of years in its use of shadow conflict, online manipulation and cyber sabotage. In a previous episode, we examined Russia and the Kremlin's desire to stretch the ties of our interconnected world to breaking point. Here's what disinformation expert Peter Pomerantsev had to say when we talked about Russia's grey zone activities against its neighbours, including Estonia. It's not just about tanks, you know. You don't have to challenge Article 5. You can go below Article 5. How much can you undermine Estonia and Latvia just through, without getting to Article 5, without getting to military intervention, just through cyber, information, corruption, all these other things. Uh, so they kind of figured that out. And if you're in Estonia, you already know what happened. You know, Estonia was, was shut down for a day by Russia. As Peter described in our Russia episode, this new game requires us to learn some new skills. And open Western societies seem to be way behind powers like Russia and China, both operating in attack mode. So perhaps we need to learn from those who are really on the front line. 
Well, listen, I'm very interested to, to see, because I look, I focus on, on one little bit of this. I'm not some great geopolitical strategist. So, so I really focus on the propaganda and information bit. And, and in that sense, there's a huge amount to learn from Estonia, let's say, and Taiwan. These are countries on the front line, countries which are trying to square the circle of how do you balance freedom of speech with countering hostile information activities and disinformation. You know, what, what, this is the great challenge that we face. How do we remain democracies uh, and yet have robust enough rules around um, um, throwing off disinformation campaigns, firstly, but also ownership? You know, how do you go around framing that Chinese companies can't own bits of your internet, which is something we're struggling with with Huawei. Um, the Estonians and the Taiwanese are very interesting in, in how they think about, you know, stopping disinformation from a legal point of view, understanding the limits of that. How do you mobilize society to kind of uh, make people aware of it? How to put pressure on the tech companies to do something about it? So look, there's there's lots and lots and lots of common experience. And, you know, in terms of creating new alliances, you know, I just want to see the Estonians and the Taiwanese talking to each other and sharing their ideas, and then feeding them back to us slightly more uh, slow countries in, in in the safer harbors of the West because, you know, they're on the front lines and they've been dealing with these questions and trying to shape them much more kind of, you know, proactively. If only I had the former head of cybersecurity at the Estonian Foreign Service to talk to about this. Oh, wait, here's Carolina Enger, who's now working at the UK advisory group Independent Diplomat. One of the obvious differences with Estonia is that all citizens have long possessed a single digital ID which they use to access all government services. Whereas, here in the UK, we're still arguing about whether such a thing is either technologically feasible or too much of an imposition on our individual liberty. So I asked her what she made of our approach in uh, Global Britain. The UK is a, is a great country and I'm very grateful for an opportunity to live here. Um, but, but there are those moments of frustration <laughs> when trying to deal with the government that, that I don't think exist in Estonia. And I, I think that the most crucial difference is a lack of a secure digital ID in the UK. The, the loops people here have to jump through here to prove that they are who they say they are and all the associated vulnerabilities that stem from the methods how people have to do it, you know, whether it is to, to your children's school or a local authority or to the HMRC, you know, that it's unfathomable to an Estonian mind that you choose to continue to live like this. <laughs> so if you're an Estonian, you have a digital ID, which is unique to you, and you can use that to, to, for any kind of public service People might might then say, well, isn't that a higher risk because that ID could be hacked or spoofed or whatever? So what, what would your response be to, to, to that? There's two aspects here. One is the security of the ID. And the second, whether this um, complicated way of logging in creates its own vulnerabilities. But first, the Estonian ID is uh, it's two-factor authenticated and insured by the government. And from that point, you have a physical token um, and you have a code that only you know, so hence the two factors. And this is how you authenticate yourself. And we haven't had a single case in the in the twenty ish years of of this being the primary way people authenticate themselves of it being forged, spoofed, uh, insecure in any way. Um, I think for me, it it as a someone who works in cybersecurity and who works in privacy issues as well. It, it fills me with a lot of unease that all these different departments have these humongous swathes of, of information on me. I don't know how they are keeping it. I don't know how who can access it and on what grounds. Um, you know, with the local council, it's just all my, my children's school information is just behind a, a email and password that it, it, it makes me incredibly uncomfortable. That has to it has to change because it, it just creates so many more vulnerabilities, and and I think one of the key factors that digital identity has given to us in in terms of or sort of a, a comfortable feeling that we know who, who is dealing with our data, is that I can log onto our national portal and I can see every person who has viewed my medical files, who has viewed any information about me, my addresses, etc. 
they need to authenticate themselves and I can see who has handled my data. Whereas here, the hospital has a paper file on me. I, I don't have a clue who opens it, who looks at it, uh, where it ends up. And, uh, and I think that that's the part that isn't okay anymore, that we, we, we can't trust paper documents to be safer because we don't know who is looking at them and we don't know what happens with them. I think it comes back to the questions of or question of values. For us, when it comes to IT and cybersecurity, transparency is a core value. So when we look at, for example, there was a huge reveal of the the Pandora Papers of, of tax havens, and and that has repercussions around the world. In Estonia, we can go online and look at the owners of any company registered in Estonia. We will always know who is making money off what companies. It's a case of transparency by design again, is that we we, we, we can't stand shady deals and, and we can't stand be dishonesty towards your people. Um, so I think when, when you adopt values like that as your sort of core foundation of how you create public services is something that would have positive effects on other aspects of, of public governance as well. An entire public administration built on security and transparency. It sounds like exactly the sort of system that the online world needs. And it's interesting that this was born in a country that was at one point occupied by Soviet Russia. By definition, a population that knows what it is to live under authoritarian control. Another person who understands that world is Eva Galperin, who grew up in the USSR. No, I, I came from an authoritarian and totalitarian country where censorship was rampant, where spying was rampant, and where privacy was tremendously rare. Uh, and there was definitely a cultural feeling in the Soviet Union that everybody would snitch you out to the government, uh, that nobody believed what they were saying in public, and that you had to be very careful about what you were saying in private. That definitely led me to, to grow up valuing privacy and security and the importance of being able to organize against authoritarianism and uh, to challenge authority. It came directly out of being raised, having come from a place where none of these things were, were valued or available. It's strange that this most unhuman of subjects, cybersecurity, comes back to a question of personal values and assessments. Kieran Martin. So firstly, I think the value of this bit of the discussion, Arthur, is that we get into the point about how all good cybersecurity begins with a risk assessment. So whether that's you personally, you know, what devices do you have? How much money do you have? Where is it? Whether it's your organization, are you a data-rich organization? Is it a bit of IP that you're really interested in? Are you a politically sensitive organization? You have to work out who might be after you, why and how. So let's apply that to national level. Estonia is a good example. Um, it's not just focused building up very good security capabilities, but it's taken enormous care in how it designs its systems and the resilience of those systems, you know, even the Russians at their very best would struggle to do major digital disruption to Estonia because of the resilience of the systems and the backups and the off switches and, 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 and all of that. So uh, let's not ignore our own human agency and choice in these matters. Now let's transfer that concept into hardware um, and software. And let's take something like quantum computing. So it's an extension of the IoT argument. So quantum computing um, breaks cryptography as we know it. So every bank card in your wallet will go in its current form once quantum computing um, comes in. Um, so, you know, the very simplistic way of looking at that is we're all doomed uh, because everybody can hack everything. But the history of the development of communications technology and cryptography implies that for the most part, you know, security should follow. And, um, and certainly we should have the foresight now to build in and regulate and incentivize secure quantum, just like we should be requiring, regulating and incentivizing secure IoT. You know, I mean, a good example of this is 
driverless cars aren't running around all the streets killing us all because we haven't found a safe economic model for their mass uptake. The technology's there for driverless cars, but we haven't found a you know human-friendly model for doing it at large scale yet. So we haven't implemented them, and we won't until we're ready. So let's not forget the human agency in all of this. In the end, this is a story about the power of human agency, not the power of machines. And a small, not particularly wealthy country right on the frontier with Russia, rather than being the most vulnerable in this new world, as a result of its human choices, has become one of the most secure. Is that a lesson for all of us? Yeah, yeah. Estonia, our dear neighbours, I'm right now in Helsinki, so I'm 50 miles away from Tallinn. It's it's, it's right there across the border. And it's it's fascinating to me when I think about how different it used to be in the 1970s and 1980s when when Estonia was still Soviet Union uh, back then it was really far away like no one ever traveled to to Tallinn or Estonia at all because it was Soviet Union you didn't go there um, and then when they got their independence they really kicked in a high gear it's it's a pretty small nation and they had no legacy system so they really jump started the digital economy from the very beginning they joined NATO they started their own research centers they kick started their own military and and this clearly also shows in the work they've been doing in in the world of of cyber defense they have a very big neighbor just like we do it's it's really a good example on how how you can really use your your nimbleness and agility to 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 get benefit over bigger and, uh, and well countries with more legacy problems which is most of the rest of europe um the the public sector is very high tech um they have all the society services online and have had for years and um right now it's it's creating more like technology success stories than most other countries in europe We've talked about cyber technology in this episode, but perhaps a bigger issue is what is on these networks. And as we all know, nothing happens in a vacuum. As Mikko said, we have moved into a world where an entire aspect of people's lives is lived online. But this online information world can be controlled, manipulated and distorted in ways which are sometimes almost impossible to detect. Indeed, we're reaching a stage where the basic concept of truth feels remote, even slightly quaint. And this is having a devastating effect on our politics. Next time, we ask, can democracy survive the war on truth? If you have enough money, you can make people you're interested in see your talking points day in, day out, hour in, hour out, minute in, minute out. That's the power of the propaganda. Disinformation is the new normal. Automated systematized radical right, that T-word. Cheers. I think that's going to make COVID skeptic and anti-lockdown stuff look like, yeah, look like child's play. Doomsday Watch was written and presented by Arthur Snell and produced by Robin Lieburn, with assistant production from me, Jacob Archibald. Theme tune and original music is by Paul Hartnell. The group editor is Andrew Harrison. Doomsday Watch is a Podmasters production. <laughs>